This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Please, tell us exactly what you saw. He got out of the car, and they shot him. Who shot him? Men in a car. How many men? Do you remember the make of the car? Was it a sedan? A coach? I didn't notice. It happened so fast. Is there anything you can remember that could help us? I remember his face. His terrible, grinning face. Whose face? What's the point of telling you? You'll never bring him in anyway. Please, Mrs. Liggett. We want to see these men brought to justice as much as you do. It was Kid Can. He's the man who shot my husband. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our final episode on Walter Liggett, a Minnesotan journalist whose fiery opinions earned him five bullets from an unknown gunman. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Crusading journalist Walter Liggett was in dire straits in the fall of 1935. His paper, The Midwest American, was running at a loss, and he was facing frequent defamatory attacks from all sides. His efforts to expose Minnesota Governor Floyd B. Olson as a corrupt demagogue earned him powerful allies in both the state government and the farmer labor party Liggett had once been a member of. That October, he was charged with kidnapping and sodomy in a case widely believed to be a frame job by Governor Olson's allies. Though he beat the charge, The trial nearly bankrupted his family. Coming home from picking up groceries with his wife Edith and daughter Marta on December 9th, 1935, Walter Liggett was gunned down in the alley outside his house. The vehicle vanished off into the night, leaving Edith with nothing but a fleeting glimpse of her husband's killer. Police arrived at the scene at 5.50 a.m., Walter Liggett was lying dead beside his car, and passersby were swarming the alley. Aside from Edith, two people had witnessed the shooting, Wesley Ondarsh, their neighbor, and Sally Myrovitz, a nurse who was attending to an elderly woman next door. Unfortunately, neither of them could positively identify the shooter. Once the body was taken away, Edith went inside, away from the now bustling alleyway, There, she was questioned repeatedly by detectives Art Olson and Charles Wetherill. She insisted that the murderer was Kid Can. I swear to God, I saw him. What did he look like? 
It was him, there's no doubt in my mind. He had this fiendish smile, and he looked right at me as he drove past. How do you know what Kid Can looks like? Is it possible you just saw someone who looks a lot like him? Don't give me that. He assaulted my husband two months ago. I know what he looks like. I should have known they'd try something like this. There's no way you could have known. Please. Walter courted danger his whole career. How could I not know? If you'll excuse me, I have to make a phone call. As Edith called her mother to tell her what had happened, the police finally dispatched officers to pick up Kid Can. Good evening, Mr. Blumenfeld. I'm Detective Kramer. This is Detective Eisenkramer. What can I do for you two gentlemen? You have been named in connection to the murder of Walter Liggett. Could you come with us, please? Can I finish my dinner first? Now, Mr. Blumenfeld. At around 7 p.m. on the night of the murder, Kid Can was taken into police custody. He was found eating dinner in a nearby restaurant and reportedly responded to his arrest with surprise, but gave himself over willingly. Can was led to police headquarters, still impeccably dressed and showing no visible signs of worry. While waiting for the detectives to fill out his paperwork, he picked up the latest edition of the Midwest American from a nearby table and casually flipped through an article on himself. He was a frequent subject of Walter's reporting. Despite being a convicted bootlegger, he owned a significant stake in the Minneapolis liquor industry. Though prohibition ended in 1933, certain former bootleggers, such as Can, were barred from profiting off the sale of liquor due to their prior convictions. So even if the industry was now legal, Can's involvement was not. Reporters swarmed the jail on the morning of December 10th. Can awoke that morning to find the hallway outside his cell bars teeming with reporters asking him for a statement. I know I'll be indicted, but when it comes to the trial, I'll beat the rap. I can account for every minute of my time. That same day, Governor Olson released a statement regarding the murder of his most vocal critic. I hope Liggett's murderers are apprehended and convicted. It is an outrage to kill a person. If Liggett was engaged in any matter in which he should not have been, it should be settled in court. Do you have any comment on the corruption charges Mr. Liggett levied against you in the Midwest American? I haven't read them. I didn't read his paper. If he made charges against me, then that's for a grand jury to decide. I'm not going to enter into any discussion of charges made against me. This statement was highly questionable, since it was Olson's clout and financial support that allowed Liggett to found the Midwest American in the first place. And as the first farmer labor candidate to reach the office of governor, he was highly concerned about retaining the support of his constituents, many of whom read Liggett's paper. Of course, it is possible that Olson may have stopped reading the Midwest American after his professional and personal split with Walter Liggett, but it's hard to imagine he didn't have any knowledge of Liggett's accusations against him. Walter's regular allegations were an unending headache for the Olson administration and the farmer labor party Olson represented. The party wished to present a united front, in contrast to other more divided socialist organizations. Walter, an avowed radical, vocally criticizing their supposedly radical candidate was a definite problem. On December 11th, the day after Olson's statement, Edith went with her lawyer to the city jail and without hesitation, picked Can out of a lineup. 
Since the night of the murder, her story had remained completely consistent. While she never claimed to have a flawless memory of events, the details she could recall never changed. However, a number of theories had begun to sprout up about the murder from the local and national press. Many reporters believed that the culprit may have been someone with a lower profile than Can. The theory held that the gunmen were out-of-towners who had been hired to perform the hit before leaving quietly, possibly from the crime-ridden city of Chicago, only 409 miles away. Newspapers stated that Walter's murder bore the plain stamp of the hired and imported gunman who is paid only for dead men and whose merciless professional tactics leave no trace behind him. The hit did bear a certain similarity to other drive-by shootings in 1920s and 30s Chicago, so this theory did have a certain amount of weight to it at the time. And the use of -of out-of-state gunmen was not an unheard-of practice, as many gangsters believed that the easiest way to avoid persecution was to hire a man who had no personal stake in the murder and no known connection to the client. Edith was most likely aware of these suggestions, but she knew what she saw that night, The other details were hazy to her, but not the face of the man who had killed Walter. Walter Liggett's funeral was on December 13, 1935, four days after the shooting. A few hours before the service, Edith sent the latest Midwest American to press. The funeral was held without a minister. It did not snow, but the air was bitterly cold, and those in attendance did not stay for long. Afterward, Edith was approached by a man with a notepad who had the unmistakable look of a reporter. Excuse me, Mrs. Liggett? I have no comment for the press, thank you. I just have one question, off the record. (sighs) What is it? Do you recognize this man? The reporter produced a picture of a round-faced man in a dark suit. Did you see him the night Walter was killed? That might have been him. I'm sorry, I need to go to work. Despite a strong resemblance, the picture that the man showed her was not Kid Can, but rather a gentleman from Chicago who had been spotted in Minneapolis in November of 1935, right around the time Walter beat the charges of kidnapping. The man was Frank Nitty, an infamous mobster from Illinois, the head of the Chicago outfit at the time of Liggett's murder. The theory the reporter was chasing that Nitty had been paid by Minneapolis gangsters to shoot Walter, only gained traction in the following months. But even as these rumors abounded, Edith continued Walter's crusade through the Midwest American. The edition that was published right after Walter's funeral bore the headline, My husband is slain, but his work will go on. In its front page article, Edith stated, They tried to persuade people to sue us. They garnished our bank account. They tampered with our employees. They used every method, including award of state purchases to make our advertisers leave us. They sabotaged our machinery. They tried to have our paper thrown out of the mail. They framed up a filthy charge against my husband. They had Walter beaten up by gangsters. And when all these methods of intimidation failed, Walter was murdered. For those wondering, award of state purchases was a fancy way to say bribery. However, Edith was skeptical any real headway would be made to discover who was behind Walter's murder. The state was picking an investigator to gather evidence, but Edith believed that was all a show. During this time, the FBI office in St. Paul received a phone call from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover himself, 
Hoover insisted that the FBI would not get involved with the investigation under any circumstances. To this day, we don't know why J. Edgar Hoover was so insistent that the FBI not investigate the murder. Maybe more conservative members of the U.S. government still suspected Liggett of harboring Soviet ties. Edith's only hope for justice was that a corrupt local system would place the murderer behind bars, against all odds. Up next, Kid Can goes to trial, and the 1936 Senate race in Minnesota takes a surprisingly dark turn. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the story. Walter Liggett's final crusade had been focused around a single objective, preventing Governor Olson from winning a Senate seat in the 1936 election. He had promised Edith that once the election was decided, they would leave Minneapolis for a safer city in North Dakota, out of Olson's reach. The incumbent, Thomas D. Schall, was a Republican who had held his seat for over 10 years, narrowly winning the last Senate election in 1930 against both Democratic and Farmer Labor Party candidates. Schall and Walter Liggett had been acquaintances for years, though they rarely agreed on policies. One of the frequent allegations against Walter was that he was paid by Schall to passionately oppose Schall's primary rival, Olson. We have been unable to verify this allegation. The closest tie between them is that the house Walter lived in when he returned to Minnesota in 1933 was owned by Schall. Marta Liggett claimed in her father's biography that the decision to live there was made for financial reasons rather than political ones. On December 19th, 10 days after Walter Liggett's death, Senator Schall was dictating a letter to the Attorney General. The contents of the letter would not be revealed to the public until March of the next year. The letter suggested that the Attorney General open a federal investigation of Walter's murder. It further suggested that the murder was a symptom of the close ties between organized crime and the governor of Minnesota. After he had finished dictating, Shaw drove home with his secretary, Oral Lean, and a handful of colleagues. On their way, he suggested they stop and buy lunch. While crossing the street, Shaw and Lean were startled by a car speeding right at them. They narrowly avoided it and rested for a moment on the center divider of the road. Moments later, Shaw was struck by a car coming in the opposite direction. Senator Shaw was rushed to a hospital, unconscious and suffering numerous broken bones and internal injuries. He never awoke, passing away three days later. 
The Senate race was suddenly left without a Republican candidate. Olson had lost his principal opponent, and in the event of a senator's untimely death, it's the duty of the state legislature to appoint the senator's successor. As governor, Olson would either have to name Shaw's successor or resign and hope the new governor would appoint him to the Senate seat. But Olson was soon distracted from this electoral dilemma. While preparing his Senate campaign, he'd been suffering from severe stomach pains, which he thought were ulcers caused by stress. On December 30, 1935, he went to the Mayo Clinic for a surgery to treat them. The official position of the Olson administration was that it was a minor health issue and would not affect his capabilities as a governor. But the truth was far more serious than they let on. It turned out that Governor Olson was suffering from stomach cancer. The governor would not officially announce this for months, but the news spread fast as a rumor and soon became common knowledge. The man who Walter Liggett had spent his last year fighting was facing a death sentence of his own. The state of Minnesota opened the investigation into Walter Liggett's murder in early 1936, case 5226. Although Governor Olson had been publicly adamant about finding the true culprits, only one investigator was ever put on the case, an honest but unremarkable man named Fred Witters. The beginning of 1936 was a rough time for Edith. On top of facing the coldest January Minnesota had seen since 1912, the task of running the Midwest American solo, while also raising two children, was taking a heavy toll on her emotional and physical well-being. Though she was a talented reporter and editor in her own right, much of the Midwest American's Minnesota connections had been maintained and facilitated by Walter. Once he was gone, Edith had few local friends. To make matters worse, Walter had borrowed against his own life insurance policy to pay the staff during his legal troubles. His death left the Liggett family with almost nothing. At her wit's end, Edith spent most of her free time writing letters to friends and family in New York, looking for aid and sympathy. She was not optimistic about the trial. Somehow, I must live through a trial where I'll be face-to-face -face with Kid Can, whose grin keeps waking me up at night and interrupting my work during the day. Right now, I'm fighting to keep my sanity. I can't leave Minnesota until after the trial of Kid Can, whom I saw kill Walter. The bets on the street are three to one he'll be acquitted. The more I think of that wicked, needless crime, the more difficult it becomes to walk around the streets and talk to people as if it were a sane world. Send mail to the office. I've moved and am more or less in hiding. Walter's friends in New York scoured the area for a newspaper editor who had the same passion to take his place at the Midwest American. Their inquiries were unsuccessful. Edith was facing the possibility that she would have to sell the paper in order to live. Minnesota was no longer the welcoming place it had been when she moved there with Walter two years ago. Even as the state-appointed legal team prepared to prosecute Kid Can, Edith saw Minnesota as a state full of enemies. The trial began on January 29, 1936. The jury consisted of eight men and four women. Kid Can had been held in jail for 51 days since the night of the murder, and he claimed to have lost almost 30 pounds in that short a time. 
Despite looking noticeably haggard, he put on an effortless air of nonchalance, chewing gum on his way to the courtroom. Unsurprisingly, his lawyer, Thomas McMeekin, entered a plea of not guilty. He announced in his opening statement that the defense would call 90 witnesses to establish Cann's innocence. The state prosecutor had three witnesses in his back pocket. Edith Liggett, neighbor Wesley Ondersch, and nurse Sally Myrovitz. None of them were present during the opening remarks in order to protect them from potential threats and, in Edith's case, emotional strain. Edith was called to the stand on February 3rd. Under oath, she identified Kid Can as Walter's murderer and testified that his face was the only one she recognized in the car. When the defense attorney, Thomas McMeekin, approached her, Edith had to force herself to remain calm. He would try to rattle her and get her to say something that deviated from her story. She had seen enough trials to know the prosecution's best case was to make the jury doubt her testimony. McMeekin began by scrutinizing the clarity of her memory. Did you give police a statement saying that the fire came from the back seat? It is the face that is vivid, not the position of the face. I I was only vaguely aware of a gun. Do you remember an officer asking you who shot your husband? Yes. And you didn't answer it was either Kid Can or Governor Olson's gang? I did not. Did you ever mention Governor Olson's name in the alley or anywhere that night? When I called my mother after Walter was shot and said, Governor Olson's gang got Walter, mother, she asked me, did you know who did it? I said, yes, Kid Can. I must have associated the two together. Did you associate the defendant with Governor Olson's gang? My association is that the murder would not have been committed without Governor Olson's permission, meaning they either ordered it or permitted it. Edith's belief in Olson's involvement stemmed from more than Walter's antagonistic relationship with the governor. In her correspondence, she references a man named Howard Guilford as another victim of Olson's hitmen. Guilford was a firebrand journalist who had worked in Minnesota throughout Prohibition and was there to cover Olson's rise to power in 1931. It's not publicly known whether Guilford and Liggett ever met in person, though they were aware of each other by reputation. Guilford's reputation was a mixed bag among Minnesota journalists. His coverage was often sensationalist and sleazy, but rarely inaccurate. Throughout the late 1920s and into the 30s, Guilford faced a number of legal attacks intended to silence his reporting. These included charges of libel and publishing obscene articles. By the end, he was indicted 19 times by Olson's associates. Despite having no political clout or influential friends, Guilford was found not guilty of every single charge. In late summer 1934, Guilford's attacks had continued just as Walter Liggett's relationship with Olson was falling apart. In late August, Guilford made a statement on a radio show that Olson found concerning. On September 3, 1934, during a famously discordant meeting of the Farmer Labor Party, Walter Liggett noted that Governor Olson frequently mentioned Howard Guilford by name at lunch, despite him not being relevant to their conversation. I'd like to take this moment to announce a radio series that will tell the whole story of Governor Olson's connection to the criminal underworld in Minnesota. You won't want to miss it. A day later, on September 4th, Howard Guilford was driving home when a mysterious car pulled up beside him. 
Someone in the car fired a shotgun blast into Guilford's head, killing him instantly. This murder sent shockwaves through the newspaper community of Minneapolis and made a number of reporters fear for their lives. Walter Liggett, however, was undeterred, despite clearly believing Olson was now capable of murder. Edith mentioned that Guilford's murder, as horrible as it was, gave Walter a certain sense of security that she was uncomfortable with. She quoted him as saying a month before his murder, The crooks and racketeers are hell-bent after me to stop my newspaper exposures, but they won't be stupid enough to have another shooting right away. It would arouse the public too much. They won't dare shoot me so soon after bumping off Guilford. This confidence proved ironic in hindsight. While he should have taken it as a dire warning, Walter took Guilford's death as a sign that he was safe from any assassination attempts for the time being. The connection between Guilford and Walter's murders removed any doubt from Edith's mind about Olson's guilt. However, the night after Edith made this statement to the court, she expressed regret for being so open about her beliefs. I did a fool thing in the trial when I let Can's lawyer, McMeekin, egg me into saying that Olson either permitted or ordered the murder. Of course it is true, but there are at least two and I believe three farmer laborites on the jury. I was the most surprised person in the whole courtroom when I heard myself making the statement. Even if there weren't farmer labor party members on the jury, Edith's accusation against Olson on the stand would still have been a massive mistake. Public sympathy for Olson was at an all-time high in early 1936. Governor Olson's cancer diagnosis had become public knowledge around this time. Edith naming him as a willful accessory to Walter's murder had the opposite effect it may have had only a few months earlier. Instead of looking like a victim sticking up for her underdog husband, Edith came off looking like an opportunist who wanted to ruin a dying man's career. From his sickbed, Olson issued a statement denying he ever clashed with Walter personally. For Mrs. Liggett, I have only sympathy. In her bereavement, she is entitled to and has the sympathy of everyone. But that does not give her the right to make false and unfair statements, such as her charge that I was connected with the murder of her husband. Edith issued her own statement in response, claiming, It is the duty of any governor to see the safety of every citizen is protected. By a curious coincidence in Minnesota, the men who are opposing the governor are in danger. Any hope Edith had of continuing Walter's crusade against Olson was disappearing before her eyes. She soon realized that fighting Olson could only hurt her own appearance. Afraid for her life and desperately lonely, her only hope was to nail Kid Can for the actual murder. The trial continued during the first week of February, and the defense brought in two policemen and two detectives as witnesses. These officers were all asked to describe Edith's manner in the hours immediately following her husband's death. Detectives Art Olson and Charles Wetherill described Edith as hysterical. Patrolman Richard Miller corroborated the claim that Edith said the murderer was either Kid Can or one of Olson's gang. The Associated Press noted afterward that the testimony from law enforcement directly contradicted their own police reports. The state prosecutor did not realize this until after these officers had been dismissed from the stand. Edith, whose memory of the night was very different from these four men, 
penned a passionate piece in the Midwest American entitled, Why Do Mill City Police Keep Protecting Can? In it, she remarked scathingly on the blatant perjury committed by police officers on the stand. This issue ran on February 7th. It would be the last issue of the Midwest American ever published. Kid Can took the stand on February 10th, 1936, to defend himself. Are you Isidore Blumenfeld? Blumenfield, actually. My friends call me Bloom. And your business associates call you Kid Can, is that correct? Sure. Don't ask how they came up with that one. Did you have anything to do with the murder of Walter Liggett? Not a thing in the world. Have you ever met the deceased? I have, yes. Last October. I met him at Annette Fawcett's apartment in the Radisson. Are you aware of the prosecutor's description of the meeting? That it was set up by Miss Fawcett as a forum for you to threaten and bribe Mr. Liggett? I have, but it was no forum, Mr. Pike. Mr. Liggett was drunk and belligerent when I arrived. He told me he'd stop writing lies about me if I gave him $2,000. What happened next? I told him to go jump in a lake. He was very angry, tried to hit me. I heard he got slugged later that night outside a club or something. Next, the defense brought a statement from Kid Can's business partner, Meyer Schuldberg, that Walter Liggett had visited his office and attempted to blackmail him for $1,500. This was part of an effort on the part of the defense to paint Walter as a shakedown artist who would demand money from business owners to keep him from writing slander about them. Well, this claim is rather ridiculous. Throughout his career, Walter Liggett publicly derided all journalists who took bribes, claiming that taking money from racketeers makes a journalist even lower than the person who bribed him. And yet, the prosecution had no physical documentation to disprove Schuldberg's claims. It was Schuldberg's word against Edith's. The prosecution's attempts to paint Ken as a remorseless criminal were less successful. Can copped to his criminal history on the stand, but claimed to have been reformed by the workhouse. When asked about a 38 revolver found at his home, Can claimed he had never even fired a gun before. This was later disproved by a number of eyewitnesses who had seen Can brandish the very same revolver while drunk. Can's alibi for the night of the murder was that he was at the artistic barber shop getting a haircut before going to dinner. The barbers and sweepers at the shop corroborated this story, though the time Can entered the shop varied wildly from person to person. Like the police officers, the times they gave during the investigation differed from the ones they now gave on the stand. The most reliable of these witnesses placed him entering the shop at both 5.30 and 5.50. The prosecutor's final attempt to disprove Can's alibi was the nearly 20-minute discrepancy between the times reputable witnesses saw him arrive at the barbershop, which was only a mile and a half away from the Liggett's house. The barbershop, the prosecutor contended, was too close to the scene of the crime to be a reliable alibi. Ken could have gotten his haircut just before or just after committing the murder. Testimony from both sides concluded on February 17th. True to form, McMeekin's summary attacked Edith's credibility as a witness, though he acknowledged it was natural for her to have misidentified the shooter in her state of shock and grief. Then he brought up her accusation towards Olson, which he insisted was an example of her lashing out wildly to find some justice for her husband's senseless murder. On February 18th at 8.22, 
The jury announced they had reached their conclusion. Kid Ken was pronounced not guilty. Ken's friends cheered wildly, and he rushed to the jury, shaking the hands of the men and kissing the hands of the women. As he left the hotel to join the raucous after-party at the nearby Radisson Hotel, Ken said, How in the world could Mrs. Liggett ever pick me out for a person that would kill her husband? I didn't have any reason to harm him like that, and I would not be a party to any such terrible act that would rob a wife and two little kitties of the protection of a husband and a father. Can's victory at this trial reportedly cost around $25,000. McMeekin received $12,600, and his trial investigator received $6,000. Can's accounts do not list where the last $6,400 went. There was a rumor at the time that he had bribed some of the jurors with this money, but it's never been confirmed. Edith, who was grimly prepared for this outcome, issued a statement she had written days earlier. The amazing part of the trial, to one unaccustomed to the close tie-up between a large part of the police force and the liquor syndicate to which Kid Can belonged, was the spectacle of four police officers calmly perjuring themselves in the successful attempt to win his freedom. This, of course, is an old Minnesota custom. No attempt has been made by the police force to discover who drove the car, who provided the machine gun, if there was any mistake in the identification, or to produce the killers. Edith could not appeal the decision. Her only slim hope was that new evidence surrounding Walter's murder would come to light. Up next, we'll follow the aftermath of the trial and see if any justice or closure can be had for the Liggett family. Now, back to the story. With Kid Ken pronounced innocent on February 18, 1936, the search for Walter Liggett's killer had officially grown cold. Edith Liggett was not the only one to experience grave disappointment at this outcome. The sole investigator on the case, Fred Witters, officially withdrew his investigation on the night the jury proclaimed Kid Can's innocence. In his report, he expressed utter dissatisfaction with how the case turned out. It was apparent to me that efforts were made constantly to block my progress in following my investigation. The case was, in my opinion, very poorly handled. The county attorney's office is probably to blame for most of the inefficiency shown. Walter's estate was settled in late February for $1,324. With barely enough to scrape by, Edith turned her attention to selling the Midwest American. She was determined to leave Minnesota as soon as the sale was complete. She had no real friends in Minneapolis and grew concerned that the men who killed Walter and got away with it would want to get her out of the picture as well. In letters to friends, Edith mentioned a number of times when she had to dodge cars driving straight towards her while walking in and out of the Midwest Americans' offices. Well, despite Edith's claims to the contrary, there's no way to prove that these weren't just cars skidding on the icy pavement. Well, no doubt the trial caused her to see the city of Minneapolis in an even harsher light than when she helped Walter with his investigations. She found herself seeing danger around every corner, and the bitterly cold wind felt like an extension of the Minnesotans' coldness toward her. Misinformation surrounding the murder ran rampant in national papers. 
The first major coverage of the whole case appeared in a February 24, 1936 edition of The Daily Worker, a communist paper based out of New York. The headline read, Walter Liggett was murdered by the underworld for his scavenging. This piece contained numerous factual errors, such as listing Walter's death as December 29th, 20 days after the actual shooting. Staying true to this incorrect timeline, the article claimed Walter Liggett wrote an overly friendly obituary for Senator Shaw, bolstering the rumor that Liggett had been on Shaw's payroll all along. Of course, Shaw had died 10 days after Liggett. The worker continued by calling Walter a traitor to the Farmer Labor Party and a blackmailer, saying, quote, Liggett had a habit, before printing stories of the workings of certain liquor interests, to ask these very people for a loan. Their dramatic reporting also extended to Edith, who they described as a hypocrite who was attempting to capitalize on her husband's death. This article would be the first in a series of brutally critical articles about Walter's death. As far as we can tell, these articles were printed in bad faith by Communist Party members who didn't like Walter's frequent attacks against the most socialist-leaning governor that Minnesota ever had. If Walter thought Olson betrayed the party's ideals, most farmer Labor Party members thought the same of Walter. This is painful. How can they get away with this kind of shoddy work? You don't have to read what they print. It's all lies. I know it's all lies, but I just... I can only imagine how Walter would react to this kind of slander. He dealt with this before. Remember the trial where... That was different. That was a corrupt official assassinating an opponent. This... This is the party he spent decades championing. Now they're trying to kill everything he ever was. After selling all the remaining equipment and facilities for the Midwest American, Edith made the decision to leave Minnesota for good. She kept the rights to the paper's title for nostalgic reasons. On March 1, 1936, Edith Wallace and Marta Liggett drove to New York City. The car they rode in was the same Ford V8 they watched Walter's demise from. Unable to afford rent for an apartment, they moved in with Edith's mother. One of the first things she did upon arriving in New York was open a libel suit against the New York Daily Worker for their series of articles. The case dragged on for years due to Edith's poverty. Edith's biggest challenge turned out to be finding steady work. In the midst of the Depression, very few New York papers were hiring full-time reporters, so she wound up working as a freelance specialty reporter. And when that didn't net her enough, she wrote factual detective stories for pulp magazines. One of these stories was banned in Minnesota for implying that Minneapolis was a hotbed of criminal activity. It was one of many small ways in which Edith continually expressed her profound hatred of the city she had just fled from. In June of 1936, an FBI agent based out of Walter Liggett's hometown of St. Paul received a report from an informant concerning Walter's murder. He claimed that Olson's clique had brought in a man from Chicago who looked like Kid Can and who did the machine gunning. This report remained internal at the FBI, never making it all the way to New York. In researching her father's biography, Marta Liggett requested this document, only to find the name of the accused gunman redacted. 
While Edith was attempting to find work in New York City, Governor Olson's stomach cancer metastasized. He returned to the Mayo Clinic for a follow-up operation in July and wound up unable to leave. Olson died on August 22, 1936. Neither he nor Walter Liggett had lived to see the 1936 election. The lawsuit with the New York Daily Worker continued throughout the 1940s. In 1941, the reporter who wrote the Liggett articles was sentenced to 30 days in prison for libel, and both he and the Daily Worker were fined $500. Edith was overjoyed to see her husband's integrity validated. According to family members, it helped her gain some degree of closure. However, her job prospects continued to be limited, and soon she followed her children out to California, where she worked a series of clerical jobs for the rest of her life. By this time, the FBI was cultivating a large file on Kid Can, who ran business operations in Minneapolis, Miami, and Cuba. Their files included his frequent boast that he held Minneapolis in the palm of his hand. Can I help you, officer? What's your name, sir? Isidore Blumenfield. I'm from Minneapolis. Maybe you've heard of me. Who's that in your back seat? This is my friend, Virginia um, Tollefson. Best not wake her. She's had a rough day. I'd like to see IDs for you and her. Is that absolutely necessary? Look, it has been a doozy of a day. How about I just give you this and uh, you let us on our way? Step out of the car, please. You're making a big mistake, buddy. I won't tell you twice, Mr. Blumenfield. Step out, or I'll drag you out. In 1959, Can was caught crossing the Illinois-Minnesota border with a prostitute and charged with white slavery under the Mann Act. The case was dropped on appeal, but Can would not escape the law for long. In 1960, he was indicted for illegally controlling the Minneapolis liquor industry. He attempted to bribe a juror with $10,000 and was subsequently sentenced to seven years in Leavenworth, two for white slavery and five for jury tampering. Edith Liggett died in 1972. Kid Can died nine years later in 1981. The story ends there, with all possible suspects dead from unrelated causes. The case was never formally reopened, though the rumors about what actually happened continued to persist, most recently with Marta Liggett's thoroughly researched biography of her father, released in 1998. Governor Floyd B. Olson has gone down in history as one of the most well-liked governors in Minnesota history. After his death, Minnesota State Highway 55 was named the Floyd B. Olson Memorial Highway. There are a pair of bronze statues of him on either end of the Twin Cities, and his childhood home was preserved as a historical site. Walter Liggett's allegations of corruption and sanctioning murder did no lasting damage to his legacy. On the other hand, Walter's reputation was damaged forever by his attacks on the Olson campaign. Despite the lack of records of blackmail or bribery, the accusations leveled against Walter by Meyer Schuldberg and the Daily Worker remain to this day. And while no concrete paper trail connects the murder of Walter Liggett to the office of Floyd B. Olson, 
the previous murder of Howard Guilford, and Olson's own turbulent history with Liggett seem ample motive for them to have Liggett silenced. We also have to consider the hit-and-run death of Senator Shaw as possible evidence of Olson's connection. The timing of the attack is almost too perfect to be a coincidence. And yet, Shaw's death did not make things easier for Olson's Senate run. It made it impossible for Olson himself to run later that year, which he was intending to do right up until his cancer diagnosis. Perhaps he was only attempting to injure the senator? or intimidate him into not opening a federal investigation? Maybe. Either way, there seems to be too much reasonable doubt around Shaw's death to use it as evidence. Olson presented himself as a champion of the common people, and both of his strongest critics were intent on dismantling that facade by exposing his corruption. Even if their deaths did not ultimately help his political career, they certainly ensured his legacy would remain untarnished by their allegations. While this is still speculation, the order to kill Walter Liggett almost certainly came from the governor, or someone close to him. I agree. The feud between Liggett and Olson paints a picture of a journalist who had an unshakable crusade against a politician's sterling reputation. When it became evident that Walter was refusing to back down in his attempts to destroy Floyd Olson's reputation, Olson responded with attacks of his own, attacking Walter's credibility and livelihood. When that didn't silence the journalist, the governor or someone close to him gave the order. The harder question is, who actually pulled the trigger on that Thompson submachine gun? The most popular candidate remains Kid Can who had the motive and the means to carry out the murder and get away with it. His airtight alibi is entirely dependent on testimony from eyewitnesses, who were likely afraid for their lives. And yet, the other theory, that the Minnesotan mob hired professional hitmen from out of town to do the job, is also highly compelling. Frank Nitti's appearance in Minnesota toward the end of 1935, as well as his startling resemblance to Kid Can, makes him a strong suspect. The traumatized Edith, who had never met Nitty, could have easily mistaken the two of them. Hiring out-of-state hitmen would make sense, but Nitty had just taken over the Chicago outfit from Al Capone four years earlier. The idea that a mob boss would personally travel out of state to perform a hit for a different gangster is a bit of a stretch. Well, I believe it was Nitty, because he also has a motive. Walter Liggett did extensive reporting on the Chicago mob while living in the Windy City. Maybe this out-of-state job was enticing to Nitty for that very reason, to get back at a man who messed with the Chicago outfit and got away with it. Well, Ken is the stronger suspect, in my opinion. The fact that he was later arrested for attempting to bribe a juror makes it clear that he was not above tampering with a trial in order to secure his own freedom, I believe the missing $6,400 in Can's legal payments was likely used by Can to pay off witnesses and jurors at the trial. In a way, Walter Liggett's murder was the strongest validation he ever received for his work. Well, for a man who fought underdog battles his whole professional life, his ethics were so unwavering that his enemies resorted to murder to protect themselves from his reporting. In pursuit of journalistic integrity, Walter Liggett gave up his party, his reputation, and ultimately his life. Perhaps the best and most concise obituary for him was the final slogan of his Midwest American, which read, 
Without a vigilant press, no democratic government can succeed. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. For more information on Walter Liggett's life and the circumstances surrounding his murder, amongst the many sources we used, we found Stopping the Presses, The Murder of Walter W. Liggett by Marta Liggett Woodbury, extremely helpful in our research. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Yeah, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is a part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Mike Capozzi, Susanna Corrington, Harris Markson, Alastair Murden, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez. <laughs> <laughs>